now turn to reading a portion of God's Word. This is from uh, the Old Testament book of Proverbs, chapter 10, verses 1 through 5. The Proverbs of Solomon. A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but he thwarts the craving of the wicked. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. This is God's word. And we now turn our attention to uh, the sermon. I will be reading the text and and praying uh, shortly. Let me just get situated here. Actually, while I am getting situated, if I can have you please uh, turn your Bibles to Psalm uh, 4. Psalm 4. And while you're finding that, let me ask you all a question. Uh, Have you ever been in a situation uh, where your life was in imminent danger? If so, I want you to, if it's not too painful, sort of conjure those memories back up, bring them to the fore. As most of you know, uh, and I think I've mentioned before, my family and I live in South Minneapolis, a neighborhood that is incredibly diverse, eclectic. Now, I have to say, I thought we knew Minneapolis, and we loved it. And so seven years ago, when we had the opportunity to buy the home that we had been renting since 2011, uh, we gladly did. And then, almost three years ago, the George Floyd killing Yes, our city was greatly affected, but our neighborhood was in close proximity to the chaos, too close. Now, I certainly wasn't a stranger to a close call with death, so what made this situation different? And as I've had time to reflect on it, here's my attempt at an answer. I think it's because of our greatest need for safety, and here I'm speaking of the city as a whole, likely since Minneapolis was incorporated in 1867, our governing leaders three years ago chose to do the unthinkable, which was to let our city devolve into 
what appeared to be, what felt viscerally like unbridled chaos. It felt like the Wild West. We were left to fend for ourselves. Subsequently, we experienced many sleepless nights. But no matter how peaceful and calm inside one's home outside, it was the exact opposite. Many of us found ourselves desperately asking this question. If the city couldn't protect us, who would? It was a recipe for many anxiety-inducing days and nights. Now, I wonder, apart from that scenario, which I'm guessing most of you weren't in um, experiencing to that depth, have you ever felt something close to that way? That your life was in imminent danger? Who or what do you turn to when life goes sideways? Especially at night. When the day is spent, it's time to go to bed. How can, how can you shut out the events of the day, especially when they don't sleep, do they? How can we turn to God with all of our anxieties when it's time to sleep for the night? That's the question. Before I read Psalm 4 aloud, would you join me in prayer? Eternal Father, whose dwelling place is the secret wellspring of heavenly light, would you send forth your light and your truth that every secret fear in our hearts might be open to joy. Grant us your Holy Spirit that we might sense the joyful secret abiding with us. And grant to us the spirit of truth that we might dwell in the secret place of the Most High and abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And now Psalm 4. To the choir master with stringed instruments... A psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O man, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? And how long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Selah. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry. Do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Selah. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, 
I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Today's sermon text, uh, Psalm 4, its author, David, is experiencing anxiety at an even far deeper level than I have ever experienced, including what I experienced three years ago. Specifically, another night on the run from his son, Absalom, who's trying to wrest kingly control from his father's hand. Popular opinion is even on his side. Even David's counselor has defected to Absalom. Even if it means he must suffer a cruel death. Just think about it, right? From a king's palace with all the creature comforts at his disposal to another night under the stars. And his mind and heart likely racing. Would he he be safe? Would he live to even see another day? And the overarching question, does God even care? The title of this sermon is Facing Another Night. Psalm 4 is one of about 50 psalms written with the inscription that I read earlier to the choir master, And it finds David in familiar territory, picking up where he left off in Psalm 3. As I mentioned, he's still on the run from his son Absalom, and he's crying out to the Lord for protection. The Lord answered his prayer then, that is in Psalm 3, but now here it is. It's another night. Same dangers Same circumstances, same God. David begins, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. One can't help but notice the sheer urgency of his prayer. It's as if he's coming toe-to-toe with God very boldly. And he's saying, show up and act. Intervene, answer me. How can David be so bold? He continues, You have given me relief when I was in distress. Again, he's pointing backwards to Psalm 3. The night before, he called to him then, and God answered his pleas for protection. But then in verse 2, David sheds further light on his predicaments. He addresses his adversaries. Oh man, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? And how long will you love vain words and seek after lies? He continues addressing these men who are against him. Verse 3, but know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. And it's here that David is stating an importantly, important truth. Ultimately, God chooses us for him. He chooses us, you and me as the church, for himself. And this is, was a great comfort for David then, amid pressing trials and discouragements, and so it is for you and I even today. God hears his people calling out in distress. 
I'll tease that out a bit more later. Look with me briefly at verses 4 and 5. David addresses three groups of people, his enemies, the church, even himself. Be angry, do not sin, ponder in your own hearts on your beds, and be silent. Selah, offer right sacrifices, put your trust in the Lord. Notice that as David is writing this, as he's retiring for the night, he's not denying or playing down his problems, is he? Do you see any sign of that anywhere in this text? It's nowhere. But he acknowledges that we all need a good word. We all need rescue, even the church. Look with me at verse 6. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Note the psalm's progression from where it started. He begins greatly troubled. David cries out to God. He knows that God hears him. And so that results in him trusting him. And the Lord shining on David's dark night, even to the extent that experientially he felt that God had put gladness and joy in his heart, which resulted in laying down in peace. Why? Because he knows that ultimately his life is in his hands. And whatever is swirling all around him, and there was a lot, it is that the Lord, and only the Lord, that makes David and God's people dwell in safety. So that's briefly what is happening in that psalm. I want us to direct our attention now to four brief points of application for us today. Application especially to help those of us faced with life's confusing trials make it through the night. And they're in chronological order. First, call to God. Psalm 4 is a call for us to learn from David's boldness and urgency to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we can call out to God, that we have prayer at our disposal at all hours of the night, no matter what is going on. His line is never busy. We can confidently call him knowing that he always hears. And I was thinking about this. You look at at the uh, beginning of the psalm, and it says that... Well, at the beginning, the Lord, verse 3, has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. It would be very simple to rip that verse out of context. You think the Lord hears? Well, the Lord hears everybody, right, when he calls? Well, think about this just for a moment. If you're a, a parent, and let's say uh, in the middle of the night you hear a child whose voice you don't recognize outside of your door calling for help. And it it sounds dire. 
But along with that call, you hear another call inside of your home. And it's one of your children. As a parent, would you have to sit and think, which call am I going to go to and respond to first? Of course, right? It'd be a, a, a terrible parent to, to go to the call outside of the door, neglecting the one in the home. That is the picture of the calling. God has a specific, he hears, he hears all, he knows all, but there is a familial hearing that he has for God's own people. And that should be a great comfort for us this afternoon. Call to God, secondly, know God. It's not merely enough to call to him. We must know the God to whom we are calling. And here, David demonstrates at least seven vital things that he knows about God. And just looking through the text with me, I wonder if you can, uh, if you just follow along with me. He hears, in, see that in verse 3. He relieves, in verse 6. He gives joy, in verse 7. He protects, in verse 8. He sanctifies, in verse 3. He gives peace, in verse 8. He blesses, in verse 6. That is, those are at least seven vital things he knows, not just up here, but experientially, about God. Who he is, what he's done, and what he will do. So know God. Third, know the true source of your contentment. Verse 7, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Now what's David saying? He's not saying... Material possessions don't matter. He's saying that ultimately material possessions aren't going to help you to better sleep in comparison to knowing that God is watching over you. That's what he's saying. You may have little money. You may be in dire straits. Your job might be ending. You might not have a job. But it, all of those things, they, they matter, so please don't hear me. And I've experienced some of these things myself. In comparison to God, the creator, the author, the sustainer of all things, he is with you and watching over you and sustaining your life. In comparison, nothing else matters. That's, that's the point that David's getting across. His true source of contentment and joy is also yours and mine today. God alone. Fourth, going to bed with our anxieties, our discouragements and troubles, seeking relief from the Lord is not a one-off. You may go to sleep, casting your cares upon the Lord because he cares for you. Wake up rested, having slept in peace, but it's a new day. Often filled with the same troubles. Psalm 4 beckons us to take our cares before the Lord every night. Of course, we're able to do this during the day, but it's at night. Isn't it at night? 
when our minds and our hearts and imaginations often toil, toy with us and for some of us, maybe even setting us off in a tailspin. So I, I wrote this sermon through just, I wrote specifically for you three weeks ago that I never preached and I wonder maybe I'll never preach it here, but here I am and I am now. So last night, about 9.15, get a phone call from one of our children is something, let's just say, of urgent, uh, of great urgency was happening with this, with this child. Enough that it could, it's not the sort of call that you would want to get on any night, but particularly on a Saturday night, and particularly on a Saturday, the Saturday night before you preach. <laughs> and yet here I was. An hour and a half later, Dad, did you hear that? What? what? There were 18 gunshots five blocks away. Well, no, I didn't. And I, I, was, I was getting ready. I was just about, I, I was in the process of getting ready for bed. Well, I'm lying there. Do you think that was helpful for me, that combination of things? And then, foolish me, I look on my app, Citizen app, I learned about during the, the, the Floyd riots. Oh, just a minute ago, five blocks from my home, somebody shot. And the emergency's out to take this person to the hospital in critical care. And that was the, a separate incident from the 18 shots that happened in a different location. Okay, so I'm trying to give you a picture of my life, which I have to say is not a normal Saturday night. But, and I'm not looking for pity or sympathy. It's only to illustrate it's a new day. And even me, who is in God's providence, slated to preach a psalm uh, on a, facing another night, I'm facing another night. And I slept horribly. I woke up exhausted. I had super intense dreams. This raises, let's take our attention off of me, an important question for us today. How can we know and trust God better at night? I think that's the question, isn't it? That this psalm is, is putting its finger on it. How can we know God and trust him better in the evening? Especially when it's dark, it's quiet, maybe others are also asleep. Joanna was sleeping ever so soundly next to me, and I was tossing and turning. She was out. When you're overcome with pressing anxious thoughts amid life's many discouragements and trials, for some of us, maybe even right now, often pummeling you without any sign of letting up. Have you ever, let me ask you, have you ever been there before? Have you? If you haven't, you're an unusual person. For many of us, what do we do? It's the evening. Distraction is our go-to. We check our email. 
You watch the news, maybe a video, maybe even a movie. Often until we just nod off. Now, might I suggest a better way? And I've done those, <laughs> to be clear, I've done those things too. So, no shame coming from me. Several practical ideas to help us better end the day as we're preparing to go to sleep. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a sleep counselor. The point here isn't how to get a better night's rest. That's not the point. The point, as I mentioned before, is how can we go to bed better trusting God and knowing Him and resting in Him as we're going to sleep for the night. Okay, do you understand where I'm going with this? Thank you. To help us move from a place of restless anxiety or agitation to peaceful, dependent rest. I said three things. First, end your day with God's Word. Sounds so obvious. Have a Bible by your bedside, one that's exclusively for your bedside, so you don't forget it when you lie down. If you're the sort of person that just must read their Bible electronically, do it on a Kindle e-reader or do it on your phone. That is, do not disturb. Or, right, so you're not getting dinged and messaged or notified of who knows what. It's tempting, isn't it, when you, you're going to bed with your phone to check the email, the news, latest podcast. Instead, let your last waking thought be about God. Make that a resolution. I'm going to let my last waking thought be of him. Yes, all of these things. It doesn't mean all these things aren't happening. There's, it, it, it's not a magic wand. It's not a silver bullet or a panacea. But it's a, res, it's a result to say, I want my, God help me to my last waking thought to be of you. And it, again, it doesn't necessarily mean you have to read a lot. Especially when you're tired. It could be something as simple as meditating on one verse. The end of this psalm. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O oh Lord, make me dwell. Right? It could be something as simple as that. End your day with God's word. Two, employ hymnody. Employ hymnody. Get a hymnal. Right? You all have this. I'm guessing many of you have this in your home. Have it next to your Bible. Learn to use the index in the table of contents. Get familiar with your hymnal if you're not. If you can, sing aloud. Or else silently in your head. Here's what Martin Luther had to say about singing. He once wrote this. Singing has nothing to do with the affairs of this world. It is not for the law. Singers are merry and free from sorrows and cares. I was thinking about this last night. I thought of the hymn, Children of the Heavenly Father, which we're going to be singing at the end of our worship this afternoon. Simple song. Simple. I'll just quote a, a couple of verses. Children of the Heavenly Father, safely in His bosom gather. Nestling bird, nor star in heaven, such a refuge ne'er was given. 
Nothing, nothing too high and mighty, not, not erudite. Simple, plain truths that we need to hear and remind ourselves when you're filled with restless agitation and anxiety as you're lying down. Neither life nor death shall ever from the Lord his children sever. Unto him his grace he showeth, and their sorrows all he knoweth. There's more. There's only six verses here, but they're gold. And we sang a couple other hymns today that had similar truths in them, didn't we? The hymnal is one of the best ways to get to know God better. It has a profound way of working its way into our mind and memory and even our affections. How often do you go to bed at night and there's a song on your mind and it could be a stupid song and you wake up and the song is rolling around in your head. That's, that's me. Joe, my wife and I have been watching the Bob Newhart show, the classic ones from the early 70s. And the, uh, the theme song, I, 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 just, it, I go to bed with it, and I wake up with it. It's sort of the first thing. And I'm like, Lord, this isn't a good thing. I, it's a great song, but give me another song to dwell on instead of that. Employ hymnody. Three, employ catechisms. We're, we're Presbyterians, at least I'm trusting most of us are. We have the Westminster Confessions, tried and true aid, but I have continually, uh, the one I have is my bedside companion, the Heidelberg Catechism. That's my go-to. It's succinct. It's concise. It acknowledges that we live in a world of sin and misery and that we need comfort. It's very pastoral. I know you've... I I think you've gone through... I looked through your website and saw that uh, Pastor Seibert's gone through a series on the, the, the Heidelberg, if I'm not mistaken. Well, here is the most famous... one of the most famous questions and answers... In all the history of, of our faith, I should know it by heart. But listen, again. What is your only comfort in life and in death? And note that word, only. Answer. That I am not my own but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. He has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. And he also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. And because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life, makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Now, you could either go to that and read it out loud or read it over and over silently, or you can just quote a couple things. In life and in death, not even a hair. Not even a hair. Right? I mean, these are simple, plain truths that we just need to wash our hearts, our minds our memories with over and over and over. Because we need them. We forget. And the fourth thing, very briefly, is journal. Journal. Put your thoughts, your cares, your worries, your paper, your prayers on paper. And in a sense, isn't this precisely 
or maybe I don't want to say precisely, isn't, isn't, can it not be argued that that's a little bit of what's going on here in the Psalms? David's journaling these things to record his thoughts, their prayers to God, his struggles and his frustrations, but they're for, for us, for the church's posterity. God's Word, hymnody, catechisms, journaling, together, how do they work to help us better lie down in childlike confidence and contentment? I'm not sure I have, if there's one exact answer, but here's my attempt at an answer. It's simply that we increasingly think our thoughts after him. That's what it is. We increasingly learn to think our thoughts after him, thinking that works its way into our hearts, even seeping its way into our subconscious. And here I don't want us to discount how God might use these means when we are sleeping. There's a Puritan by the name of Richard Baxter. He once wrote, well, he wrote a lot, uh, one of the most things he's most famous for is this huge, massive tome called the Christian Directory. Uh, before Tim Keller was the famous Tim Keller, just a regular, ordinary pastor in the 80s, he wrote a little blurb on the cover that said it was like the best counseling manual in, you know, in the history of the church. That's what it says. That's what he said. Listen now. He gives seven directions Richard Baxter, on to, I think the title is Against Sinful Dreams. Seven directions against sinful dreaming. I'm not going to read them all to you. I'm going to read just one. This is direction five. You can look this up on your own. Here's what he writes. Let your last thoughts still before your sleep be holy, and yet quieting and console, consolatory thoughts. The dreams are apt to follow our last thoughts. If you betake yourselves to sleep with worldliness or vanity in your minds, you cannot expect to be wiser or better when you are asleep than when you are awake. But if you shut up your day's thoughts with God and sleep, find them upon any holy subject, it is like to use them as it finds them. Yet, if it be distrustful, unbelieving, fearful thoughts which you condole with, your dreams may savor of the same distemper. Frightful and often sinful dreams do follow sinful doubts and fears. But if you sweeten your last thoughts with the love of Christ and the remembrance of your former mercies, or the foresight of eternal joys, or can confidently cast them and yourselves upon some promise, it will tend to the quietness of your sleep and to the savoriness, I love that, the savoriness of your dreams. And if you should die before morning, Will it not be most desirable that your last thoughts be holy? Those are great. I think that's, that's, that's a money quote. That's, that's gold. All right. As we conclude, Psalm 4 isn't just a, a night psalm for when we're facing grave danger. Because unlike David, or unlike what happened... It, to our family, our immediate neighborhood, our city, 
three years ago, few of us are going to encounter someone hunting us down, right? Like wild animals, like David. Or experience, as I mentioned, what we did three years ago in Minneapolis. But we all encounter day-to-day fears and anxieties. Life is hard, isn't it? You're going to leave here. You're going to go back to your home. Life's hard. Fears and anxieties that can keep even the most carefree among us to be overcome with sleepless nights. Dear friends, here in Psalm 4, we have an example of a prayer for us to follow. Call to God. Know the God to whom we call. Know that as our Father, there is a familial hearing that He gives to His children. Trust Him. The one who sacrificed His only Son for us, who endured unfathomable anxiety and distress, dying for us on the cross. And we have the privilege of partaking today, right now, the benefits of his blessed resurrection and ascension. This is not a guarantee that you will be exempt from anxiety, fear, and tear-laden nights. Or that you're always going to wake up, go to bed joyful and restful, and wake up in peace. It's not a promise. But we do these things knowing he hears us. And he cares for you. He loves you. And come what may, our eternal future is secure. And that is the main thing. Because Christ died for you. That's the main thing. And we have the promise of an eternal rest mentioned in Hebrews chapter 4. This is good news for those of us who suffer from fitful sleep. Maybe some of us this afternoon who experience dark, debilitating depression. I've been there more than once. Day turns to night, you wake up, nothing seems to change. Ever been there? Another day to grind through. There is an eternal rest awaiting God's people in Jesus. And so may he be gracious to you and me. Tonight. Tomorrow. As many nights as he allots to each of us. And so we can confidently know that in peace may you both lie down and sleep. For it is God alone, God alone, that makes you dwell in safety. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are riddled with fears within and without, real or imagined. Would you grant us grace, mercy, and repentance to turn to you again and again and again? Thank you that we can go to bed at night knowing that you never sleep or slumber. 
that you watch over us both night and day, and that you have made peace with us through the cross. Would you give us your peace anew as we lie down and sleep even this night? For you alone, O Lord, make us dwell in safety. Would you hear our prayers in the name of the resurrected Christ? Our Lord, our Savior, our brother and friend. Amen.